All right. Good morning, Mercy Hill. Caitlin, great job on those names. They're tough, aren't they? Um, you, may, you may wonder, wow, that's a lot of scripture to read. Why bother with all those names? It's really important that we model on Sunday morning what our lives should look like during the week so that what we do as a spiritual family together isn't just something that happens on Sunday, but then that becomes a, a regular rhythm and pattern throughout the week. And so, yes, we read through large passages of Scripture on Sunday morning because we know that this is God's Word and it's needed throughout the week. And so we're going to talk more about that. This story that you've just heard read is an incredible beauty. It's an incredible picture of God's mercy toward us. God's mercy toward David and also God's mercy toward us. Most of us can probably think of a time in which we look back at our lives and we realize just how foolish we acted. Maybe foolish isn't even a strong enough word. Just how stupid we were. Kids, I know, it's not a word we're supposed to use that very often. It's just that strong. How foolish we are, but then we look and we see the way in which God, God's mercy comes in and rescues us. And we're so grateful. Mercy is defined as compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. Let me put that on the screen. I think I've got it to go on the screen for you. Mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or to harm. So you're expecting really bad consequences and nothing happens. That's mercy. I was listening to the radio this last week and I, I heard a really great story from a Jewish family. And uh, in this story, instead of practicing Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, their father created a different day that they would practice. Not just the Day of Atonement, but what he called the Day of Amnesty. And he went on to tell this story. He's in his 80s now. And his son was 58. And his son described this day, one day a year, where anything could be shared with complete forgiveness for any past crimes committed. No retribution. And on the, on the radio, his son shared one story that his father had never heard. Now his son is 58. He shares when he was around 15 or so, they had crab apples in their backyard. And he picked up one of the very hard crab apples. And he and his friends would chunk them into the neighbor's yard. But on this day, he picked up a large crab apple. And with a perfect shot, he centered the glass window on their back porch. Somehow not only shattering that window, but causing all 20 of the glass windows to have a domino effect. And they all shattered. And his dad had never heard this story. <laughs> that one was too great to even share on, on the day of, of amnesty. And so 
he went on to share about a time in which he was making toilet paper fires in the bathroom. You know, getting them up about a foot, foot and a half. Kids don't get any ideas here. And he said it was no problem. He'd always just, you know, they get up, they start to get it. You get a little worried about them. You just drop it in the toilet and you flush. But he looked down and he realized he had burned the toilet seat. So he quickly made his way back to his room to get his, his watercolor paints in order to fix it. Can only imagine how long that lasted. All of this started because his dad, when he was young, had been playing with firecrackers in the living room of all places. Or rather, in the kitchen. And he dropped a firecracker on the kitchen table and it burned through the table. And just like his son, he had gone to his room and he would gotten some things and tried to fix it and tried to paint it. And it, it, didn't, it didn't work. And so he covered it up. And he said for three days, he lived with the guilt. And finally, one night at dinner, after three days, his father said, You look terrible. You're not eating. You haven't smiled for the last three days. You look like you're sick. Spit it out. What's going on? And he showed him what he did. And his father said, Do you think the world's going to come to an end because you burned a hole in the kitchen table? It's not a big deal. And he came to realize how good it felt for the guilt to be removed. And so he established this day annually within his family, an annual day of amnesty. Now, for us as followers of Jesus, God offers us amnesty that's greater than the removal of guilt that was just described. Not on an annual basis, but on a daily basis. Because of the work of Jesus on our behalf, we are granted amnesty, no retribution, no consequences, because of Jesus' work on the cross that our sins have been paid for. That all who come to Jesus in surrender and find relationship in Him and forgiveness in Him, we're granted amnesty, forgiveness. In the story that we see today, we see a huge reminder of God's mercy in the life of David. The point of this story is not that David is wiser or more virtuous than Saul, although he was. But the point of this story is that David's relationship with the God of mercy makes all the difference. And all too often, believers, we can walk away hearing of a God of mercy feeling like there's so much more that we need to live up to. The big idea for today is this. Very simply, God's mercy never runs out for His children. And if that sounds too good to be true, then maybe I'm barely hinting and giving you a shadow of what true grace and God's mercy is really like. Let's look today at three ways in which God is for us. The first is this. God's mercies are new each morning. God's mercies are new each morning. Remember when we left this story last week? Do you remember where Saul was at? He was at probably the lowest place in his life. He was at the witch at Endor. He had taken just a couple of men. He had uh, disrobed himself. He no longer has his kingly robes on. He's put on more than likely just the clothes of, of just a soldier or even a beggar possibly. And he's made his way into enemy territory in order to go and to seek 
what his future might be as he goes to a witch. He has abandoned God. And he's eating what would likely be his last meal. He goes to this witch for what we could describe as his last rites that are read to him from a witch. And it's the lowest place in Saul's life. Especially if you fast forward to chapter 31 in which he will go into battle the next day. And he will go to his death along with thousands of other Israelites, along with his son, along with his armor bearer. It's one of the saddest stories. Now, the writer in chapter 29, he brilliantly flashes back. So imagine this as a movie. You leave Saul in the darkest place of his life, and the writer flashes back. And we pick up the story of David. Push, Paul on, uh, push Paul's on Saul's story, and the scene shifts. And we see that David is on the opposing army's side, and he seems to be preparing for battle against Saul and against his own fellow Israelites. What's going on? David has spent the last 16 months with the Philistines. If you remember, he went over to Gath, which was Goliath's hometown. And David writes God out of his story, and he goes over to Philistine headquarters. And he goes over, and he's hanging out with them. And he's been living his life on his own terms. Apart from God... You read through all the Psalms. There's no Psalms that are written during this 16 months of David's life. There's no allusion to God in this chapter. All throughout 29. Minus one. The Philistine general actually speaks of God. And David does not in verse 6. We'll get to that in a minute. David's living life on his own terms. And all the while he's doing this. He's been providing for his own soldiers. By going down on raiding parties into the Negev and he's lying to the king all along saying, oh, I'm going down and killing my own Israelites. But he's not. He's killing and literally slaughtering other tribes who were allies of the Philistines. And so David has been making his way by sharing lies. And while this worked for a little while, all of a sudden in chapter 29, his troubles have caught up with him. Now, in order to understand what's going on in, on this day, the Philistine nation was ruled by five separate lords or generals. So they've all come together. And the king is one of those. Uh, but as they all come together with their fighting forces, David is there with the fifth rank of men... And all of the Israelites that are his soldiers are with him. And the other four generals very wisely go, What's going on? These are Hebrews. And the king says, Oh, no big deal. They're just mercenaries. They've been with me for the last 16 months. No problem. He's faithful. He's been faithful to us. He's killing his own people. And they very wisely say, Do you not remember? They must be thinking... King, do you not remember the song that was sung? Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. Do you not remember who those ten thousands were? They were Philistines. They were our people. Now you're allowing this man to go 
in our final rank behind us? And they very wisely say, oh, no way. He'll slaughter us. What better way for him to get back in favor with King Saul than in the heat of the battle to turn on us and begin to take our heads, just like he took Goliath. And so the king comes to him and he says to David, he says, you got to go. He said, there's nothing I can do about this. And he's forced to dismiss David. And, And in a surprising twist, David protests. I mean, David is freed, and we don't understand. Theologians often wonder, did he really have a plan in order to maybe go behind their backs and to kill them? And we don't know. But David protests. And I think that it just gives us a great illustration of how foolish we become when we're caught in our sin. And when we're caught in our lies. And when we've written God out of the story and when we're living life on our own terms, we become foolish and prideful. One commentator said it this way, The deceived defends his deceiver and the relieved disputes his relief. Another theologian said it this way, Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Now, David... David's made a mess of his life at this point. But I want you to look at verse 10. And I want you to see the beauty of God's mercy and His grace. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you. And start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Do you see God's tenacious mercy in this passage of Scripture? God is graciously at work on David's behalf before David ever turns back to him. The writer of Lamentations illustrates God's mercy in this way. In chapter uh, 3 of Lamentations, verses 22 through 24. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. God's mercies are new each morning. Consider the contrast In the early morning light, King Saul wakes up blurry-eyed in order to go to his death, while David wakes up to experience the mercies of God. With the morning light, David will march to freedom, while Saul will march to his death. What's the difference in these two men? One thing, David's relationship with God. And that relationship isn't currently existing because David is keeping up his end of the bargain or his side of the relationship. It's completely one-sided. Even King Achish, the king over the capital there in Gath, speaks of God more often than David does. God is merciful to His children. So often working on our behalf... 
when we've turned away, when we're sulking, when we're angry, God's tenacious mercy is poured out on the life of His children. Praise God that He doesn't reward us according to our iniquities. But instead, His mercy is never ending. Just as the sun rises each day, God pours out His mercy on those who love Him. Not because of us, but because of Jesus. The second way that we see that God is for us, God's kindness leads us to repentance. God's kindness leads us to repentance. The question in David's life, like it is for so many of us in our own lives, is how bad will things have to get before we put our hope in God? How bad will they have to get before we turn to God? Think about David's story. He makes the 60-mile march back to Ziklag. Anybody ever march 60 miles or run 60 miles or walked 60 miles? Okay. I've run 26. Matt has. Iron Man. 26, I was really tired. I can't imagine 60. These men show up and I'm guessing that although they're tired and worn out, they're also anxious because they're looking forward to seeing their wives and their children. But something happens. They see smoke ahead. And the story doesn't tell us, but I can only think that they must have broken ranks. And these tired men suddenly have a surge of adrenaline. They, and they break ranks and they run to Ziklag to find what? Devastation. Fire has swept through their homes and there is nothing left. And it's clear that their wives and their children have not been slaughtered, but probably worse, they've been taken into slavery. And these men know what happens to slaves. And look at their reaction in verse 4. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive. Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed. For the people spoke of stoning him. Because all the people were bitter in soul. Each for his sons and daughters. Bitter in soul. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Man, you talk about a bad day. You think you've had a bad day? I mean, David's got to be thinking like, how much worse could, get the, could this get? You know, so often we interpret our bad circumstances to be God's punishment. Instead... Oftentimes, God's using our troubles in order to turn our hearts back to Him. Look at the men's response and look at David's response. David's men, they give up on David. They weep and lament until they have no more strength and no more tears. They were passionate warriors, weren't they? I mean, they lament there is a crying out. This is 600 strong 
manly men, and they are wailing and weeping until they have no more strength. And I think that's a really good thing. Grief is good. But grief will either turn our hearts toward anger and despair, or grief will turn our hearts toward God. And we see this in David's life. I want you to take notice of the end of verse 6. It's been 16 months since David has spoken of God. And in this terrible moment, in this pit of despair that David has dug for himself... Look at what verse 6 says. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. This is crucial for us as followers of Jesus. That we understand how to strengthen ourselves in the Lord. Because we need the Lord daily. If you understand spiritual warfare. Then you come to understand that we are in a battle that's taking place against us on a daily basis. If you, haven't read, uh, if you haven't read anything recently about spiritual warfare, or if you say, I don't think I've ever written a book on spiritual warfare, go buy David Pollison's book. A little thin book on spiritual warfare. I don't remember the name, but David Pollison. does a great job of addressing the way in which All of life is spiritual warfare. The evil, the injustices that Ben prayed about, the parts of our world that we don't understand, that's spiritual warfare. That's Satan at work in this world. But here is one of the ways in which we misinterpret Satan's darkness and how we're to come against um, and how, how we're to trust in the Lord in the midst of those hard times. Look at David's life and think about Job. There was that moment in Job's life where his home is destroyed, his children are destroyed. He's kind of wishing in the back of his mind, God, you could have done me a favor and you could have destroyed this wife along with him because she's given me nothing but a bunch of lip. Like she's saying, curse the Lord. You could have just taken her too. That's not the struggle for Job. The struggle for Job is not overcoming all of that. The struggle for Job is what will he do with his heart? Who will he trust in? It's not just the bad things that have taken place. It's where will his heart be directed? Where will he find strength in the midst of that turmoil? And so on a daily basis, we need to strengthen our hearts in the Lord. And I'm going to be quite frank with you. We don't know how David did that. That's all it says in verse 6. He strengthened his heart in the Lord. But guys, I'm not that smart. My IQ is pretty low. My ACT tests were pretty, uh, they were really low. Uh, I was fortunate to get into college. But it doesn't take a wise guy to figure out. David strengthened his heart because he knew the Lord. He knew the Lord's promises. He remembered what Jonathan had said to him when Jonathan threw a backpack on and sought him out in the midst of the wilderness and put his own life at risk in order to come to his good friend and say, David, hang in there, buddy. The Lord's for you. He's not against you. And Jonathan strengthened David. 
And it doesn't take a genius to figure out one of the main ways that David strengthened himself in the Lord was that he picked up his harp and he began to write music. How many songs did the guy write? A lot. We've only got the best ones that were published, you know, on his most famous albums in the book of Psalms. How many more did he write? How many bad ones did he write? David loved to strengthen himself in the Lord through song. Now, I'm not suggesting that you go and learn how to play the guitar. Because I would... Well, Andrew says, why not? I'll tell you why not, Andrew. You will either see me sing, and I love to sing, or you will see me clap. But you will rarely see me do both, because I cannot. That is how much of a struggle... I have. But there are ways that we can strengthen ourselves in the Lord. We have David's songs. We can read those. And I want to take just a moment as we kind of come to a, an end. And I know we're just on point two. Point three is very short. It's my conclusion, so don't panic. We're going to get there quick. But as we consider this moment in David's life and the fact that he strengthened himself in the Lord, what would that look like for us on a daily basis? I want to remind you of a means of grace that historically the church has used for centuries in order to be strengthened in the Lord that's known as contemplative reading. You may have never heard this described in this way. Contemplative reading. Reading historically called Lectio. It's the careful attending to Scripture. The careful attending to Scripture. Not in the way that you think of reading the Bible through in a year. But listen, it's, it's probably not what you think. Uh, some mentors of mine, Rich Plass and Jim Cofill, have described it in this way. They've said our spirituality is dependent on our capacity... To pay attention to what God is up to in our lives. But paying attention is not a matter of willpower. It's not concentrating with a tight focus on something. Most of us speak of daily Bible reading. When we think of reading the Bible. Daily Bible reading. And our goal becomes the amassing of knowledge. And while daily Bible reading or contemplative reading, while it shouldn't be less than that, it shouldn't be less than gaining knowledge, it certainly should be more. Reading the Scriptures is so much more than just knowing more facts about God. Contemplative reading moves us from our heads to our hearts. It's the reading of Scripture from a different perspective for a different purpose. In short summary, the perspective is surrender and the purpose is intimacy. Let me say that again. The perspective, so it's more of a perspective or an orientation than a method. And the perspective is surrender and the purpose is intimacy. Now, what does this look like? Our CBR journals, if you've picked up a, a community Bible reading journal, it every day begins with a question that gets us headed in the right direction when it comes to contemplative reading. 
It's the question, what do I need to surrender? And do you see how that question begins to move our hearts in a direction to say, Lord, I'm here in this moment in order to surrender And it moves us toward intimacy because in surrendering, we're yielding our trust to God. Because what are you usually surrendering? Control. You're usually surrendering something that you realize that you've taken control over and that you need to yield to God. And so contemplative reading oftentimes begins with surrender. I like to follow that up as I begin just by asking the question, what am I feeling? Enlisting eight feelings and then writing, writing down in my journal what I'm feeling at that moment. Am I feeling sadness or gladness or fear or loneliness or shame or guilt or hurt or anger? And to write those down each day. If you don't have that list of eight, see me. I'd be happy to share them with you. And then... As I begin to read, I want to read until a phrase or a word strikes me. And, and let me say this. If, if, if I have two choices, if I have the choice to read and get through all the Old Testament passage for the day and all the New Testament passage for the day in the CBR journal, if that's one goal, or if I have the opportunity just to read until a word or a phrase strikes me, I'm always going to go with the second. Because the point is not to check the box and finish reading all the Old Testament chapters and all the New Testament chapters. That would be the point if we're trying to amass knowledge. But it's fine to read them both. But when something strikes you that you would stop and that you would begin to um, either read that aloud, this this is critical and key that you would do one of two things. Either read that portion of Scripture aloud... Or that you would take a journal and that you would write that scripture down in the journal. And oftentimes for me, it is the simplest of scriptures that I write down and remind myself. And some of you have learned that as well. I was, I was thankful, I think it was last week, I heard my oldest son say... Um, I've learned that God oftentimes speaks to you through the very simplest scriptures that you already know. And he said, and Mr. Robert taught me that. And uh, I thought that was pretty cool. And so God often speaks through some of what we already know, what's familiar to us. But there's something that takes place when we speak it out loud or when we write it down. Because it gives us an opportunity in order to reflect and to respond in a way that simply sitting and trying to churn it over in our minds does not allow. I mean, when you put pen to paper, it's almost as if you're sitting with a counselor and you're having a conversation. And you begin to process the truths of God's Word. Attending is a matter of being open to whatever it is we're encountering at the present moment. Some of y'all got weirded out a minute ago when Ben said, let's pray, and I want you to take a moment to be silent before the Lord, and I want you to concentrate on your breathing for a minute. And you got weirded out, and you thought, like, is he going Eastern mysticism on me? Like, what's he doing? 
I didn't ask him to do that. We didn't talk about that. It's, a, it's an incredible practice to say, I'm going to take a moment to try to, to understand what's going on inside of me. Not everything that's on my calendar for today. Not what other people are thinking about me. Not how I feel I should be acting for others and how I'm going to keep everyone satisfied around me and keep my world, you know, in, in perfect peace. But that I would begin to slow down and to make myself available to the Spirit who lives within me, whom I rarely hear from. Attending is a matter of being open to whatever it is we're encountering at the present moment. And in that, we aren't looking for a way to read the Bible to find solutions or problems. That's not the purpose of contemplative reading. But instead, as a way to seek God and God alone, based on the promise that God reveals Himself to all who seek Him. 1 Chronicles 28.9 says that, that God reveals Himself to all who seek Him. One of the most difficult things about this form of living, and I say living because if we begin to practice contemplative reading, what we will find it is, is a, it is more of an orientation than a method, and that it will bleed over into our lives past those, that period while we're reading. Because we're actually orienting our lives around God. And one of the most difficult things about this form of living is that in this manner of reading, it actually changes the pace of our lives. It changes the way we think about being ourselves. And so we're not just rushing through Scripture in order to check the box like we would any other task. But we're slowing down. Now, here's the truth. <laughs> the uh, all in all honesty and openness, I know all of this, and it's still not the way I typically approach God's Word. I mean, I've seen this modeled. I've had multiple mentors. I've been to um, small group retreats and even large conferences where people have talked about contemplative reading and, and modeled this way of life. And it's not the way that I typically approach God's Word because my heart is deceitful above all things, and it's desperately wicked, and I think all too often that I can fix my own problems and solve the insufficiencies of my life uh, if I can just get enough things done and be as efficient as possible. And so I, I typically rush through my scriptures. I typically make this another task. And I think it's why we so desperately need not just missional communities, but our DNA groups or what we've called coffee groups in which we discover and nurture and apply God's Word, and it's a reminder to me. I mean, the guys in my coffee group right now are some of the most encouraged, some of the greatest encouragement in my life right now on a weekly basis because I know that we together, as one of them said this last week, are loving, loving God and that we are fighting sin or slaying our sin together. 
And we're hearing how God is at work in each of our lives. And this type of reading is absolutely inefficient in our Western world. I want to really emphasize that. Like this type of reading is absolutely inefficient in our Western world. This is the furthest thing from convenient. And it's absolutely crucial in orienting our heads and our hearts toward God. Absolutely crucial. The third thing that we see in the way that God is for us is that God answers when we cry out for help. God answers when we cry out for help. Look at verse 7. David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. I mean, David hadn't inquired of the Lord in 16 months. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. And we push pause right there. And Andrew is going to come back next Sunday, and he's going to pick up right where we left off, and we're going to continue to see how God rescues. But I want you to hear me. In this story and in our lives, the final word is a word of hope. Hope, not despair, is the final word. David strengthened himself in the Lord, and the Lord answered. The Lord answered. You know, oftentimes, our problem is that we don't seek the Lord until we find ourselves in the tall weeds. And then we go looking for something really specific. But here's the truth. God is faithful that He will be found when we seek after Him with our whole heart. Not in order to hear what we desire to hear, but in a posture of loving trust. That we would, what did we sing? That we would build our life on His love. It's a strong foundation. Because we trust. Every day in our life, every day is meant to be a reminder of our opportunity to begin again with God. An opportunity to repent and put our hope in Him. Just as the sun rises, His mercies are new each day. Great is His faithfulness.